Hello. It's been a while since we've released a podcast, but I promise you it's worth the wait. For this next series, we're moving towards talking to organisations that work across boundaries, across silos, across portfolios, and work with different partners to create new opportunities and new ways of realising public value. And we've got a great person to kick us off. Today, I'm talking with Alyssa Scott, who is the CEO of Blue Light. We have to be really clear about that shift in direction, that we want to honour our history, but we really want to make sure that we are relevant and moving with what the needs of young people are today. Blue Light is a Victorian not-for-profit organisation that works to shape the lives of young people and to strengthen their participation in communities. They're run in local communities right across Victoria, each made up of their own independent branch, but with close partnerships with the wider Blue Light network and with Victoria Police and other local community members. We're delighted to have Alyssa Scott with us today. Pleasure. Thanks, John, for having me. Where are you speaking to us from? What What is your hybrid working life like and, and how are you finding the new normal? Sure. So today it is very much hybrid. I am working from home and generally that's fantastic because all of my family are not around. But um, today we have my husband working from home and also my son doing some online learning. So it's always a tricky space to navigate who's going to sit where and how that's going to work. But, yeah, we've just made that work over the course of the pandemic, which has been great. And actually now it's fantastic to be able to have that mix where it's a bit of time in the office and then a bit of time at home. And I find certainly at home generally I can have time to do more of that dedicated thinking work. So it's, it's been good. Let's talk about Blue Light. Um, Blue Light's a, a pretty small organisation, but you are very well known. I, I know in this preparation for this conversation, I was remembering my childhood in the 90s, Blue Light discos in, mm-hmm. in Wangaratta, but I also had the embarrassment of recognising that that doesn't reflect much of what Blue Light is today. Well, why don't you start with telling us a bit about Blue Light, where you've come from and, and where you're headed? Blue Light was founded back in the 1970s, so 1976, and it was founded by Victoria Police. And it was a group of police officers out at Moorlbark who were really keen around youth engagement but providing a drug and alcohol-free space for young people, and so they created the discos. What then happened from certainly the first disco is we saw that these discos were rolled out across the state. So in any one year, up to about 20,000 young people or more were actually attending these discos. So it was this amazing, it became basically an iconic Victorian event, I suppose. And so for all of us who are probably in our 40s or 50s or 60s and maybe 70s, we've had probably some connection to blue light discos. But jump forward a number of years and about 15 years ago, Victoria Police and Blue Light Entity became separate. So Blue Light has been its own independent charity since about then. And Blue Light now looks for its funding in a whole array of um, areas. Victoria Police no longer fund Blue Light, and so very much Blue Light is its own standalone charity. And we have really morphed and become more than just a disco organisation, and probably that should be our tagline, we're more than just discos. But over the last 15 years, we have been really dedicated to looking at what else young people are wanting and needing in this space when it becomes when it looks at engagement. And so we have been looking at working with young people in an array of activities based from in-schools programs to events and activities that might be skate days or creative arts or social enterprises or camps. It's a whole whole array of things. So Blue Light today looks like 24 branches across the state, all the way down to Portland and out to Bensdale, up to 
Mildura. They have dedicated volunteers overseeing each of those branches. Some Victoria Police members are also involved in those branches, but otherwise it's also members of the community. And then we have a state office, so that's what I'm the CEO of, and we have a number of paid staff, and we are the ones generally responsible for running the in-schools programs. So we have two really big in-schools programs that we run. One is a Year 7 to 9 program called Blue Edge, and we're in about 15 to 16 schools even this term. And the other program is called DASH, and that is a program for Years 5 and 6 students. We've just been successful in securing some federal government funding to roll that out into the northwestern part of the state. So I very much moved from that disco history um, to working with young people in new and creative ways, but still in a good year that's not COVID-impacted, probably assisting about 20,000 young people. So it's a great statewide organisation that has the potential to have huge positive impact. I imagine uh, lots of organisations would 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 kill for a um, instant brand recognition like Blue Light. Just reflecting on the story you've just told, it, it it's probably a mixed blessing too for you. Um, sort of shaking the the is it yeah? Tell us about the experience of having such a strong brand, but actually something that perhaps is a, a dated or not where you need to be in the future. Yeah, it's a really good point. So I think we have got this amazing heritage and we really want to honour that heritage. And as you said, so many people just know us, but they know us as being about discos and they know us as being almost partners and being run by Victoria Police. So what does that mean for us now moving forward? Well, it's a couple of things. One is to ensure that we get our communication and our public relations right around we are more than discos because a lot of young people aren't really into discos these days. We know that we run discos in some of our country locations because they don't have access to those type of things, but it probably only makes up about 5 to 10% of our work. Looking at how is it then that we shift our brand to be more recognisable for young people today because, you know, it's been a while since I've been a young person, so I might recognise the logo and know what that might mean, but young people today will not have any clue about our history in discos and the types of engagement work that we've done. So we do need to be really conscious about that because we are an organisation for young people. The other thing that our history does is this. People make assumptions about where we get funding from and that can be really complex for us because people assume that we get funding from Victoria Place and we don't or people might assume that we get funding and base funding from perhaps areas of government that we just don't. So we're like any other not-for-profit. We are chasing money from donors and sponsors and grants and a whole array of areas um, so that we can continue to work with our partners and Victoria Place is still very much a very key partner for us but also so that we can diversify the people that we work with and look more to, say, emergency services and other community agencies. So we have to be really clear about that shift in direction, that we want to honour our history, but we really want to make sure that we are relevant and moving with what the needs of young people are today. Honouring our past but sort of looking to the future, I mean, that's such a common challenge for so many public purpose organisations. What does that look like for you? Where are some of the sort of, I guess, difficulties and challenges in in doing that? Obviously, partly that's that history of connection to police. Yeah, tell us a bit about how that sort of balance or, or between the honouring and looking to the future. What, is, what does that feel like? I think there's a couple of things in it. One is around making sure that we understand our purpose. So who is it that we exist for? And I think because we had that deep history in Victoria Police, in fact, we probably were doing things that were more of more assistance to police. So we were thinking that that's how we were designing things. Even though we were designing things for young people, we still had police front and centre. One of the things that we've really focused on as part of our new strategic plan is this. Who do we exist for? Is it police or is it young people? And very much the board has determined we actually exist for young people. So if we exist for young people, then there's a nuance in that and there's a nuance in how we communicate that. 
So it means we have to be really thoughtful about, well, how is it that young people want to engage with people like police or like emergency services or other community agencies? So we have to think about our communication strategy and how we communicate that out more broadly and then where we seek funding from. So perhaps more youth-orientated spaces that we might look for funding from as opposed to some of those historical areas that we've looked at. We're really about engaging young people so that we can increase their protective factors and protective factors so that they have better mental health and well-being and resilience for example and if you increase protective factors then by that very nature of course that will help with things like crime prevention but it's almost a secondary outcome and so again I think our initial focus was just on crime prevention and that is still a big part of the work that we do but it's now through increasing protective factors. So that shifts the way that we think about funding and where we actually look for um, other people to partner with us and to support us in the work that we're doing. And, of course, it goes to your relevance, right? So for you to be that protect, for you to address those um, crime prevention factors, you, you need to have that relevance and connection. I, I imagine also that's a bit of a journey perhaps for some of your stakeholders, maybe maybe volunteers of the organisation who have heavily invested in, in the past. How, how do you go about taking people on that journey? I think we're just beginning to do that, actually. So I've been in the role now for 12 months and, you know, you almost need that first 12 months to kind of get the lay of the land, see where things are at. We've just um, put into place a new strategic plan that Cube helped us with, actually, um, towards the start of the year. And now we're starting to communicate more broadly about that and where the board has sat in terms of some of the priorities with that. So around diversifying our partners. And again, there's a bit of a shift because a lot of people have just seen us being tied to Victoria Police. So it's communicating that police are still a key part of the work that we do, but we actually think that we can assist young people in a far bigger way if we start to engage with emergency services and other community agencies. So we've really been focusing on the communication about that and how we're going to do that and bringing people along with the journey. So to talk about too some of the recent research about what young people are wanting, the fact that young people have been really disconnected and isolated as a result of COVID and what it is that they might need to be able to feel more connected in community. And at the very heart of what we do, it's around community engagement and connection. So it's great that we can use Victoria Police as role models in that space with young people, but we also think if we want young people to be connected to community, we want them to be connected to a whole array of other community leaders and community role models as well. So mm. that's really the story that we're actually starting to push out across, not just the state office and the work that we do, but across our branches as well. That's wonderful. And, and, and your observations about the challenges for young people of connecting in the, over the past couple of years provides, I guess, real opportunity for, for Blue Light to be a part of that in a, in a really positive way. Now, some of us, uh, like myself, are still struggling with your earlier comment that young people aren't into disco so much anymore. Um, <laughs> turns out the 90s was quite a long time ago. And, and, it's a and shock, isn't it, for it, both it, of us? <laughs> sorry to hear. Let's hope these things come full circle. But um, in the meantime, I mean, clearly a big part of your opportunity there is the voice of, of young people and hearing from them, being led and guided by them. Tell us about some of your thinking about that. What, what does Blue Light do today in terms of empowering that voice and what are you thinking about that other way to, to have the voice of young people in the organisation? So we've really been trying to, over the last 12 months, strengthen how we obtain and gain feedback from young people. And that, at the, at the minute, is actually done via feedback surveys, 
by focus groups, not just with young people actually, but by some of their extended families. So it might be parents or caregivers. We're having greater conversations with schools, particularly teachers who we've been engaged with in rolling out some of our Blue Edge programs. So we're starting to be better at actually collecting that data so that we can interrogate it and really learn that way. One of the things we would love to do, though, is actually have a youth advisory group. So we are really passionate around actually using young people and bringing their expertise in, paying those young people to actually provide their opinions and their voice to us because we know that's really about youth participation and doing it in the right way. We're currently in the process of trying to seek some funding for that. We haven't been successful yet, but we're not going to give up. We're going to keep trying because we do think that hearing those voices of young people and having them deeply embedded in our program design is absolutely critical. We also think that young people could have a really strong voice back into Victoria Police, for example, and probably other emergency services too, in that police need to learn as well from young people around what it is to engage with them, what what are some of the points of real distress for young people, what are the needs. And so if we were to establish a youth advisory group, we think that certainly Victoria Police would benefit from being able to use that voice as well. So that's something we're really passionate about. It's in our strategic plan. We're hoping that we'll be able to land that in the next 18 months. So for now, we look at using other means to get the voice in but ultimately that's where we want to move to. We've had um, previous conversations with this podcast with um, I remember a conversation with Leanna Buchanan, Commissioner for Children and Young People, just the power of young people articulating for themselves um, what they need from these services and and just the insight, the maturity and the power of that. It's a, it's a very powerful thing. How have you found that so far? Most through the, the methods that you've currently got, surveys, feedback, other other ways of focus groups. How have you seen that voice in, in what you what you're doing? We've certainly improved in our ability to capture that. We've got a bit of a way to go, though, if I'm honest. We know that there's so many amazing stories out there from young people, whether that's stories of them going through our programs and what they've learned and what they've achieved as a result, or just listening to what else is actually impacting them in their local community. The beauty of the Blue Light model is this. We have the 24 branches across the state, so it's place-based. And therefore, it's not someone just from Melbourne going, oh, we think this is going to work and you can roll that out in regional Victoria and that's going to be amazing. It's actually people in those local areas telling us what they need. And so we're learning more about that from our branches as well. And branches are speaking with the young people that are involved in their different programs and trying to capture that then and think about how we can implement that as part of our program design. So ultimately, we'd love to be doing more formalised co-design actually with young people when it comes to programs um, but we're not quite ready yet so it's because primarily we just haven't got the resources internally to be doing more of that as I said it's in our strap plan we're really keen to move to that space because we want to increase the level of youth participation not just the fact that young people are accessing our programs but actually we've co-designed that with them so that it's meeting their needs out in those different places where we have our branches and also in the schools that we're servicing across the local areas certainly metropolitan Melbourne and um, regional Victoria. I wonder if I can shift gears a little bit now and just talk a bit more about you as an organisation. You you mentioned Mm. earlier something like 20,000 kids involved in your program, 24 branches across the state for what is a pretty small, on paper at least, a pretty Mm -hmm. small organisation. I imagine a big part of your story is partnerships and um, I'd love to hear some reflections on that. Uh, Particularly I'm thinking about what it's like for a relatively small organisation, at least in a a funding sense, but obviously not in terms of footprint and, and impact. 
what's been the experience of Blue Light and your partnerships? Who are, who are your key partners and, and, and how do you go about sort of, uh, leveraging those resources for, for such a large impact for such a small organisation? I think partners are absolutely critical and key. And again, that's reflected in our strategic plan. We need to strengthen who we are partnering with and really work together in terms of some of our initiatives. But one of our key partners, of course, is Victoria Police and a really long association. We're talking you know, over 45 years now. And Victoria Police are a really big organisation. And you're right, Tom, we've only got, you know, a couple of paid staff at Blue Light and then you've got police who have got thousands upon thousands of members across the state. So uh, it's interesting and it can be challenging at times. The great thing about Blue Light, of course, it's small, it can be agile, it's in the not-for-profit space, it can be creative and innovative. Something like Victoria Police, there's lots and lots of different layers and layers of decision-making and approval. So it's actually remembering that you need to be diligent about going back into all those different layers and having multiple conversations before you can actually probably get traction and with where you need to go. We're very fortunate that we have the Chief Commissioner as our patron of Blue Light, so that's been fantastic and he's very supportive of Blue Light and the things that we're rolling out. But, of course, if we're running a program in Mildura, for example, the Chief may know about that and think that is fantastic, but we need to go down through all the other levels to make sure that operationally we can have some police involved in for example, our Blue Edge program, which means they'd need to be involved for a couple of times a week. So that can be challenging because police have got millions of different priorities. They need to uphold the law clearly and and provide different resourcing on the ground operationally. So that can impact on whether we can actually roll out a program on any one day or not. And it's around how do we hold the blue light priorities in the same way that Victoria Police want to hold them. So um, we have to have lots of conversations. We need to have lots of conversations at lots of different levels. And we're really fortunate in that we have a number of people on our board who are either serving or previous serving Victoria Police members. So that helps us as well because it means that we can ask questions about who else should we be talking to about here or where's another part of um, Victoria Police that needs to help us be involved or who else could help leverage us into this space. So that's been really, really beneficial for us. And I think that long history, again, also helps us. But we also know that police members themselves think that we do lots of discos and not so much of the other work. So there is a piece for us there, again, around that communications and PR so that everybody's on the same page. The other thing about working with partners like Victoria Police is this. Our programs clearly benefit young people. We know that through the evidence. We know that through our evaluations. But they also have a really big value for Victoria Police members. I think what happens with police is that, of course, they work in in the most critical of spaces and they've been called into crisis upon crisis and that's really hard work. If they become involved in our programs and they're working in a positive sense with young people, it can really help their mental health as well. It gives them a different perspective on young people around the absolute amazing um, abilities of young people and their wealth of knowledge in a whole lot of different ways as well. So we know from the the police members who've been involved in our programs, that has been incredibly beneficial for them and has allowed them to see young people in a different light, but also just has provided a little bit more balance from continually dealing in that crisis um, spot day in, day out. So they're a key partner and some of those messages we are keen to roll out more broadly to some of our other partners because we think there's benefits for young people and also those frontline staff to try and help balance some of that really hard work that they that they face. So we are looking at, you know, diversifying from, you know, just working primarily with Victoria Police to broadening who else we work with in emergency services. 
we're rolling out our DASH program in the northwestern part of the state starting in Term 4. And if I think about that program, we're looking at working with people like Parks Victoria, ESTA, CFA, SES, um, DELP. There's a whole lot of people that we can actually start to partner with in different and creative ways. So that's fantastic for young people because they really get to see you know, other members of their community and different roles that they can be involved in and really learn from their wisdom as well. So for us, it's around strengthening some of those relationships and some of those partnerships so that um, they can be of benefit to young people. So, yeah, that's a, it's a new space for us to be in. We've always been very wedded to Victoria Police. We will want to continue to have a strong relationship with Victoria Police but diversify and use some new and different partners as well so that we can really engage them with young people. For you too, working with young people and particularly improving young people's opportunities to engage with with services and uh, you mentioned crime prevention, but mm. so many organisations have a have a stake in the welfare of young people. Our education system, our health system, our justice system. There are sort of so many sort of overlapping, I guess, beneficiaries if we think about it that way of the work that you do and the and the overlap that you do. How have you gone about partnering with those wider group of stakeholders? I know that conversation we had a moment ago is probably looming in the background of their Victoria Police and their that sort of history and, and legacy. But I suppose also there's the story there about recognising the joint benefit, the joint interests, the joint beneficiaries from the kind of work that you do. Um, how have you found that? And what sort of things do you do to help help your partners sort of see the joint interest and, and therefore the opportunity for, for joint activity and joint investment? Mm. Look, it's a good question because it can be actually a little bit tricky. The niche for Blue Light is this. We work in the early intervention and prevention space. So sometimes it takes a while before you might see the actual social impact of our work. So how do you sell that back to your partners? What we do is now, because we've been around for such a long period of time, we draw on our history and we say, you know, back when we did X, this is what we actually found. And guess what? Our evidence shows that even through to this date, that is still of benefit to these young people. What we know about Blue Edge is that we evaluated that back in 2020. And we then did some longitudinal work looking at the impact for young people. And what we know is even six to 12 months after being involved in a Blue Edge program, for example, that those benefits are still apparent to young people. So that's what the message is back out to our partners. It may not be as readily easily for you to see that right now, but actually this is what the evidence shows us. We know, for example, with Blue Edge that we've got young people who are far more engaged at school once they've done one of our programs than they were at any point in time prior to being involved in that. Look, the partners who we were working with in our programs can see the progression for a young person over the over the term of that program, but it is the longer-term impact that actually we're really interested in, cap- in capturing in terms of the social impact. That for us is still a work in progress because of that early intervention space and around creating protective factors that will then allow somebody to transition through those really critical years of being a young person and hopefully to be able to make some wiser and smarter choices along the way. You're a small organisation. You mentioned being, you know, quite nimble and responsive, the opportunities that come along with that. A lot of your partners, maybe a less so, Victoria Police, very big organisation, mm. quite procedural, quite legislative. Uh, you mentioned schools also, big, often quite procedure and, and you know, less less nimble. I'm sure local government is part of that story as well. Um, have you got any um, experience or wisdom you can share with folks about 
how you go about as a small organization engaging with some of these these bigger perhaps more conservative but bigger organizations what what's that experience been like for blue light any any wisdom you can share there i think one of the most powerful things that we've been able to do is actually share young people's stories if you can actually sit and hear a young people a young person talk about what they have gained from um, their experience with blue light then that is incredibly powerful We had a situation earlier this year where we had a young person's story captured that was essentially had been involved in blue light in one of the local blue light branches for quite a number of years. He had been disengaged with school. He had been very much, you know, probably starting to make some choices that weren't in his best interests. Became involved in a blue light branch, did a number of blue light activities. The support from that local blue light branch to help him get his license, to get work, et cetera, et cetera. And now we've got a young person who is working full time, who's in the disability um, support service area, and he's had this amazing story. And he would would have otherwise probably have been a young person that would have come to the attention of police in a different way, who probably would have taken a very different path. But you can see that that actually starts to resonate with people in big organisations that you want to partner with because they're able to grasp that story and go, wow, that's the impact and that's a long-term impact that Blue Light can have because of the way that we're structured. So really that's very much what we're focused on, capturing some of those amazing stories that come out across the state and actually really feeding them back into those organisations that we partner with or organisations that we're really keen to partner with to say, this is what you can be part of. One of the other partners that we're really focused on is actually in the corporate space, you know, looking for corporate um, or businesses that are keen to partner with us to say, if you volunteer some of your time, this is the impact that you can also have with the young person. And this is the impact that that young person might also have on you in terms of your learnings about community and how they see things. So it is, it's around connection to story and it's connections to those stories of hope and transformation, I think, that always land really well with partners, doing more communications from our point of view in terms of what our purpose is, how we get there, sharing our evaluation results. There's a whole lot of different things that we're trying at this point in time to really get that message across about impact. I wonder if I could shift to talking a bit about you now and your experiences as as a leader. You're you're in an exclusive club of people who took (laughs) on significant leadership roles during a global pandemic, so congratulations. Um, Tell us a bit about um, your experience coming in. I'd be interested in in that story around um, what's it like to join a new organisation in a period such as this, but also just perhaps the change that's reflected for you um, coming into a CEO of a a small organisation and share us a bit of your journey. Perhaps I'll start even earlier with um, a little bit about my background. So I started my career as a social worker and had done a little bit of work in the not-for-profit space when I was a social worker and then joined, um, some would say, the dark side and became a criminal lawyer and worked in in the criminal law space for a long period of time, uh, working at Legal Aid and then transitioning across to the magistrate's court in some leadership roles there. And I was at the Magistrates Court when the pandemic hit and I was actually uh, in the CEO role as an acting CEO at that point in time while they were recruiting for a CEO. Sat in that space at courts for about eight months and learnt a lot around leadership in a pandemic. Had been thinking about prior to being asked to take on that role, moving actually back into the not-for-profit space. So it was great when that was over then being able to transition into something like Blue Light and brought some of my learnings across from the court in terms of leadership and leading in a pandemic into blue light. 
And what I will say is I think a smaller organisation is far better placed at being able to be more agile and flexible during a pandemic because working at courts, you know, courts are big, they're based on some archaic kind of processes. It was really hard. It was a hard space to be in to try and move everything online. And then I came across to Blue Light and just went, wow, I actually think that You know, it's been a really tough gig for a number of our staff who've been overseeing programs that are in schools and, of course, schools have all gone on to online learning and our programs work better if it's face-to-face or what does that look like. But the resilience and the tenacity that I saw still within Blue Light despite the impacts of the pandemic was actually remarkable. So for me, I was really buoyed by that and to go, here is a group of people who have just continually worked and to make it work in a really hard space. I suppose another big change for you is moving from within a large organisation where you were working for and advocating for policy change and improvements, uh, moving into a role as a as a not-for-profit and a leader of a, a service movement, provider of programs and services. Tell us about that shift for you too, that, that shift in kind of the nature of your role and I guess the way that you need to interact with some of these bigger services and systems? Yeah, so, I mean, coming from the courts, uh, you know, when I was in the acting CEO role there, there's probably about 1,200 staff that I actually had responsibility for and moving into Blue Light, there was a small team of about four paid staff um, at the time. So it felt really unusual and a little bit strange when I first moved in going, oh, hang on a minute, I don't have anyone who can just do that for me. I need to do that for myself and I need to be thinking that through differently. But I actually have really loved it because what it's required is to continually be able to shift between the operational and the strategic. And we've grown and developed. We now have far more paid staff than when I first arrived, but it's that continual being able to shift between the operational and the strategic. So I very much enjoyed that. When I was at courts and you know, other areas um, of my career, you generally your funding is set. So you, you're still advocating for new initiatives as part of your funding, but it's there's a whole lot of baseline funding that, of course, is there that covers your operations. That's very, very different to the not-for-profit space. And what it's required me to do is to use my transferable skills from what I've learned in leadership in the legal sector and bring it into the not-for-profit space in a different way for advocacy. So it's almost moved from previously, you know, advocate for people in court and held those roles. And now it's around advocating for an organisation and why people should actually partner with us and why they might like to fund us to do certain initiatives. So it's still using the advocacy skills, but actually it's also around positioning and probably selling almost what it is that we do now in the not-for-profit space so that people also capture those visions and capture what our vision is and go, yeah, we want to be part of this. This sounds really interesting. And we think that there's real benefit in that for the community. So I'm continually advocating for funding, looking for where we're going to get the next dollar from for grants and looking with who else we can partner with in terms of corporate sponsors or philanthropy or business, et cetera. And that is a very different move for me. And it does require some different skills. And it requires you to be able to still have those conversations that are based in integrity, but you know that you're also needing to be asking for possibly some some donors to come and sponsor you, whereas previously I wouldn't have needed to do that. It would just be around a policy position. So, yeah, that has been a shift. At times it's felt uncomfortable because it's new and different. And I still think I'm working on that. I think there's a bit of room for me to even improve in how I do that. But, um, yeah, it's, it has certainly been, it's been great. I've had that advocacy background because I know I've been able to bring that in, but I think I can still be better at it. Our guest today has been Alyssa Scott from Blue Light. Alyssa, thanks so much for being part of this conversation. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to From All Sides. 
If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at cubegroup.com.au. Here you can find some show notes, additional links, and download the transcript of this interview. While you're there, you can also read our case studies and thought leadership insights to see how, as a purpose-driven consultancy, we're creating a bright future for every Australian through our work in many different public value settings. I'd invite you to subscribe to From All Sides on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you know when a new episode has arrived. And please don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Thanks again for listening. Look forward to bringing you another episode of From All Sides very soon.